But uh, what a woman needs to understand is this. In this day and age, if a guy is into pornography, get away from him. Amen. It's as simple <laughs> as that. Hey guys, welcome to the first episode of the podcast. I've decided to join everyone and their moms and their dogs in creating these over the past two years. So I'm speaking with John Euler LPC today about a really interesting variety of things. And if anyone has any suggestions for a title for the podcast, please let me know. Thanks. Enjoy. So I'm speaking with John Euler LPC, licensed professional counselor. What is your official job title? I'm a certified sex offender treatment provider. Uh, but that came out of my work in the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections on psychology staff. And I was recruited to start the, the nation's first intensive treatment program in long-term solitary confinement. And from that, one of my claims to fame, if I can <laughs> oh, yeah. sort of chuckle because it's, you know, it's, this will make uh, for good trivia, a good trivia question, but I, I hold the record in terms of prison psychology staff uh, clinical contacts, uh, contact hours in a long-term solitary confinement. So I've spent more time working with those individuals than any other psychology staff uh, so, in a prison setting. And then headed up one of their, um, uh, as far as the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, one of their standalone 65-bed units uh, for high-intensity or high-risk offenders, high-intensity, where the uh, sexually violent predators are um, are housed as far as treatment and then uh, department of corrections flew in robert hare from british columbia who is the author of the pclr the hair psychopathy checklist so i um, i was a part of those selected as far as a small group to be trained by him and so i'm certified in that and that's uh, my background and then i still do now on an um, what we might call an outpatient basis. I have a, a caseload, a group of guys that I work with uh, that are on parole. Wow. So I still do sex offender treatment on Saturdays. <laughs> That's my Saturday. So I shift <laughs> from working with uh, regular clients, as it were, uh, to working with sex offenders. So I put that ahead on. Incredible. Um, when So you have a great analysis of how the sex industry disproportionately harms women and girls. Did you have this analysis prior to doing this work or has your work strengthened your analysis? Which kind of came before, would you say, if you're able to speak to that? Sure. Uh, my care for women and children came before that. Uh, my uh, clinical background started with working with, well, a wide variety of people, but eventually kind of uh, began focusing on survivors primarily survivors of sexual abuse. That was my introduction to trauma. And so if, um, if you walk people through that journey, uh, you end up understanding the effects, the damage that perpetrators can have on, on people. Oftentimes they're perpetrated on when they're young and there are a wide array of types of perpetrators and then types of things that they can do to people. And then there I was working with those guys, you know, the kinds of guys that affected the kinds of people that I worked with. 
And so I, I knew I had a unique opportunity. I call it my 11, 11 year field study. And I, I did embedded field research. <laughs> I was on staff, but I knew I didn't want to spend forever in prison in my own way on psych staff. Um, but I spent 11 years and each day I was driven kind of unlike my counterparts and that's not a negative things toward uh, thing toward them it's just i guess unusual to find somebody on psych staff within a prison system that is driven to do research now i didn't do formal research in the sense that one would have to go through all the things but i was doing my own research i uh, i liken myself to the jane goodall of uh <laughs> sex offender research that I went behind the scenes uh, where no academic researcher could go. Um, an academic researcher, if they're going to interview guys in prison, there's a very lengthy process they have to go through to get permission and, and to line up the inmates and who who's going to volunteer or who they want to interview. And so it's very contrived in a way, and it, it makes sense. The interview room is typically... Uh, recorded, there's oftentimes, it depends, but there can be officers standing right there. So I would not have known prior to working in a prison system that methodology, how one goes about doing the research, setting up the interviews, really matters because of the population we're talking about. Those that offend especially men. So my primary focus is men, but there's a big difference in a way between male and female offenders, though I haven't worked personally with females, but I understand the difference enough. Mm -hmm. uh, but sex offenders, by and large, are the greatest liars and deceivers of all criminal element. Mm -hmm. And that's what people need to understand, that the words coming out of their mouth. It doesn't mean I don't like them. It do, I work with them. But there's a big difference. And that's the thing I would not have appreciated. And I had to learn um, because I went into the prison system also hoping to make a difference. I believe I did. You always want to risk believing there's, there's room for growth and that a client that you're working with is interested in growth. But once you start to see, as I did, or I found out, because I kind of dove deep into the minds of the guys, and the only way that you're going to get meaningful information, all things being equal, out of a guy that is sexually offended is for him to view you as nothing. You're not to his advantage. You're not uh, to be feared. Right? You can't bring... Uh, sanctions or negative consequences, he has to sort of forget you're there in a strange sort of way. Do they ever? Not really. But if a, if a therapist, if a clinician is artful enough, little by little, you can help them drop or they will drop their defenses. They'll drop their, their mask and they'll start to get real. And that really takes place in a group context because you can lie to other people but you can't lie to another inmate as the saying goes there are no secrets in jail and the inmate the inmates don't tolerate bs and that's why uh, pedophiles do not want to go to prison 
because they know not only what's awaiting them, but the reason why what's awaiting them is what's awaiting them is because those in prison know how men become pedophiles. It's neither nature nor nurture. It is deviance, and there's a pathway into deviance. It's very predictable. Then you introduce pornography and the Internet. Now you've supercharged that process. I would not have known that prior to working in prison. So my contention is it takes someone working in a prison setting to learn. So if now, as I'm working with guys on an outpatient basis, meaning in the community, I have a group, there would be no way. There would be no way I could truly understand the dynamics and what's unfolding in front of me and who my clientele is. Because once the client leaves your group or your office, you don't know what they're doing. Yeah. You're not following them home. You have no access to all their criminal history, their psychosocial history. You don't know anything about them other than what they're telling you. And guess how long they had been telling people they would never touch child pornography. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So they are the world's greatest liars. Now, I'm not calling them names. It's just reality. How do you know? Because by the time they're busted. You start tracking back their history of porn use. And how long have they been doing that? Years and years. It takes thousands of hours. By the time a guy becomes a pedophile, and that's my contention, that every pedophile. Because, again, I had access to all the files. Every pedophile started with adult material. And if they were younger, child on child, that's a, different, that's a different issue. But those men who made it into adulthood, that everybody was surprised around him by the time they got busted, that individual was not perped on. It was just sheer deviance. And they went down a certain pathway, and all the inmates know it. And that's why these guys don't want to go to prison because they can't BS and they can't start saying, well, I was abused or I was reenacting the abuse. And that's what's gotten into the literature. And the greatest influence for me was to kind of open my eyes to the dangers of pornography. It was James Dobson, his interview with Ted Bundy. And then Judith Reisman, who was, uh, she and I had become fast friends. It was the greatest compliment I had received to have her call me a colleague. And she had asked, just before her death, I didn't know uh, if she was going to die. It was just after taking the second COVID shot. Um, but she had asked me to write a book with her. And that was just a really neat thing. We were going to kind of unmask and unravel the mind of the predator. But it was Judith Reisman, who is the world's foremost authority on Kinsey. She did a deep dive into how Kinsey influenced um, the whole pornography uh, industry and, and his mind and what he was about. He was a, a deviant pedophile and how his work was funded. And it was really a goal to shift society, shift the mores of a, of a culture, of a nation. And Hugh Hefner came from uh, Kinsey's work. And so the entire porn industry was born, can be traced back to uh, Kinsey. But in answer to your question, it, it started my interest, uh, my intensity, really, uh, started from my, my work with survivors. That was my awakening to trauma, to what happens. Because prior to that, fortunately, 
that was not my own experience. So I didn't know. I think the average person, a lot of my background is church related. I, we just didn't know. And I'm, I've actually been on church staff. Many, many churches don't know. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're very ignorant to the ways of predators. And so when I finished with the prison system, I actually started churchprotect.org as a training site. It's still in operation, but it's been subsumed under survivorsupport.net. And I felt compelled to help clergy, to help church board members, to help congregations understand that the most, the most sophisticated of all child predators Behind the scenes, people don't know this, but the most sophisticated of child predators specifically target churches. Yeah. And they will target the churches they know about and as far as the lingo. And they usually got busted being a part of a church. And so they're going to go right back into those churches because churches do not understand. And they have a mistaken notion, a very dangerous notion of what forgiveness is. It's a misnotion. And so these guys will be welcomed with open arms. They go back into a congregation. About 40% of any congregation has been victimized in their past by someone crossing their sexual boundaries. That's the only thing pastor really does know about his congregation, but most pastors are unaware of that. So in comes with open arms, this congregation, the leadership, will welcome what they think is a fallen sheep, you know, a sheep that strayed, was, uh, was taken in a fall, a predator. So they can't discern. And so my challenge, for instance, to churches is this. Until you can meaningfully describe and differentiate the difference between a prodigal, a perpetrator, a predator, and a, a porn addict, you are not prepared to take a sex offender that's gotten out of prison. You are not prepared to have that man in your congregation because you are inclined to have him in your congregation. I'm not saying you ostracize him, but don't you dare have him in your church service. Yeah. And if they want more information, they can contact me about how they might work with those men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what, percentage if you are able to say of offenders with whom you work are successful or even good candidates for rehabilitation i mean i should start with how much of what you do is assessment and what is the expectancy for release when you go into a case because i mean yeah i don't know it i guess it yeah yeah tell me about it <laughs> there you go yeah well i i think there's formal assessment and then there is continual assessment uh, the formal assessment for guys that are uh, on parole, in a way, a little bit similar to in an institution. In an institution, in a prison setting, it's based upon offense. So if a guy has a sex offense, uh, you don't really have to assess him as far. Now what you're going to assess is level of risk. And there are some risk assessment instruments, uh, one of which is the most widely utilized but at some point in time, I will write about it. I have already spoken about it a little bit. The Static 99 is the most widely utilized sex offender risk assessment for sex offenders. 
it is deeply flawed when it comes to pedophiles. Deeply flawed. How do I know? Because I, not only was I using it and I'm assessing these guys, and it actually gives bonus points, as it were, to sophisticated pedophiles. Meaning where a normal guy would score high, and for all other populations, all other offenses, it's actually very, very good. It's a 10 item, what they call static indicator. So you actually don't even need to interview the inmate. So you look at background related issues. But ideally you interview the inmate. But with pedophiles, the uh, talk about flawed methodology, the premise that the researchers have started with is that child offending on the part of an adult has to do with lust and testosterone. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with that. Zero. Absolutely nothing. That's why you can castrate these guys. Sorry. But right, you can oh, chemically yeah. castrate them. I had a group, and when I really found this out, this the public should know this. Um, all of a sudden, before I know it, these guys, uh, the inmates, you know, my group, one particular group, this becomes a topic. It, it started kind of between a couple of these guys, and I'm listening, and I thought, well, okay, let's find out what this is. Because in group, you kind of have the latitude sometimes to let something develop. And before I know it, they're talking about chemical castration because my guess is it was in the news in Pennsylvania and that they were floating the idea either in the legislature or in academic circles. So uh, now I have this topic unfolding in my group. I thought it worthwhile. I want to hear. And it was interesting in the group, since the group is not separated by offense but by risk level hmm. you can have in one group the full range of of sex offenders there's about eight categories of them and half of them want to kill the other <laughs> <laughs> right so uh, the and this will be another thing that will be helpful for people to understand the majority of sex offenders want to kill pedophiles because okay. there's even this in in that realm, there's still sort of, a, this may sound funny, kind of a, a moral code that you don't harm kids. So part of my role was to make sure one half of the group wasn't hurting the other. Um, but what that also affords is this. You have, as far as the field study, and no academic research is going to be able to watch this unfold, and this wouldn't happen uh, in a probation group out in the community. I can attest to that. It's very, very different. You have unfolding in front of you, if you do this right, as a researcher, as a clinician. So you have a group. Here comes this topic. In that case, it was um, chemical castration. But it can be any topic. And you'll be able to watch because you kind of fade back then from their discussion. I'm sitting right there, but now you will have cross conversation. And the one group, because they have animus toward the other, they will challenge them. And before you know it, the inmate now, the pedophile is directing it toward a fellow inmate. 
And so you can now kind of sit back and watch. And the one population won't allow the others to BS. That's how you get meaningful information. For instance, I digress, but this is valuable. Um, it was one of the other inmates that had a, an adult female victim. He came in uh, before group, and he's kind of shaking his head, and I asked, what's up? He says, Mr. Euler, he says, three of the guys in this group, you need to talk to them. I said, what? He says, do you know what they were doing last night on the block? I said, what are they doing? He says, we have block TV. He said, you know, there's channels. Everybody kind of vies for this. He said, I can't stand, I think he said like Wednesday nights. I said, what, what's going on on Wednesday night? He said, Wednesday night, 8 o'clock. He said, do you know what's on the cable channel? I said, I don't know. He says, toddlers in tiaras, mm -hmm. TLC. He said, we hate that program. He said, guess, who gets the, uh, guess who's there ahead of time in lining the front seats? said, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, they come in, they tell you how well they're doing, yet behind the scenes, they're watching toddlers and tiaras. Now, Cheryl, I ask you, what researcher, you know, what um, academic researcher sitting down with guys would ever get that kind of information? Yeah, yeah. They're not going to. But as far as the chemical castration, that topic came up. And you should have seen half the group, or actually about three quarters typically. So you have about a quarter uh, pedophiles. These, these, the pedophiles were talking seriously about if it's offered, they would accept it. So mm -hmm. they could get out early. Not so that they wouldn't reoffend. That wasn't what, now of course they would say that's the reason. Well, you should have seen the other half of the group, or the three quarters. Their eyebrows are raised like, what? You would do what to yourself? It shows you then, as far as offending, a man that offends against a child is neither lust nor testosterone. It's a darkened mind. And that is what drove me during those 11 years to really dig deep into the criminal mind and into the mind of a pedophile. And so I have produced a number of training pieces that I help people um, understand the stair-step fashion. And some of those charts, by the way, can be found on churchprotect.org under uh, truths. Uh, so I have myths about pedophiles or predators and then truths about uh, predators. So if they want to also see uh, some of my my own writings, as it were, in post form about um, how one best researches uh, sex offenders and predators and pedophiles. I have that on there as well. Okay. That's interesting to hear you say that it's neither lust nor testosterone because, I mean, within, like, among women, the saying is, if a rapist does not have a penis, he'll find something else with which to rape you. That's why, you know, regardless. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So it's still, like, even women in prison with males who have had... That's um, right. the surgery, it's still a danger to them. So, That's I mean, right. I, I, I struggle with that personally understanding that, but that's, that's okay. I can, um, well, I'll yeah. help you. I'll uh, help you in a sure, second. Sure, I'll help you in sure. a second. Understand it. Sure. Okay. A man, a man is visually oriented, all things being equal. We notice 
Um, intuitively, women understand this and track with me. I, I'm going to develop this. For That's okay. okay. Intuitively, women know that I'm not, I'm not connecting a fault. Let's, mm -hmm. I'm just laying the groundwork for this. Yep. On a date, first date, women will dress up. Men, if they have half a sense, they'll dress up as well. But um, there are two industries that are probably pretty re recession proof. It's the cosmetic industry and the hair industry. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amen yeah. buying that, right? So yeah. mm -hmm. it's intuitive. And that's a good thing. That's an okay. That, when it works, well, everything's fine. That's typically how a husband and wife prior to being husband and wife, that's how they connect the yeah. man you know some enchanted evening across the crowded room there's chemistry and all that and that's a wonderful yeah. thing mm -hmm. that helps with passion in a relationship that's a beautiful thing mm -hmm. when it becomes inverted or given over to self what happens is lust now comes into play lust is the root of lust is self-centeredness yeah or that's where it emanates from so you go from healthy sexuality to now lust kicks in. Lust is what drives the porn industry on the front end. So think about way back when, when Playboy started. Lust is normal attraction now gone sour. And it's the beginning of objectification. And you can have objectification within the topic of sexuality or anything, quite frankly. What is objectification? Objectification is instead of loving people and using things, I invert it. Now you throw sexuality on top of it, and now you're actually going to objectify a body. But a used car salesman selling a couple a lemon is objectifying them. They are a means to an end. So whether in finance, whether, I mean, wherever you, wherever you find people that, politics, right? Wherever you have people that are willing to use someone else, they are objectifying that person. That person doesn't matter as a person. They are a means to an end. So uh, that's, that's my overall working definition of objective. You layer now sexuality upon that. So you take someone that objectifies. Now you layer sexuality on top of it. Now they will sexually objectify. They will use someone to their advantage. So it's going from attraction to lust. And here's, here's what's important to understand. Lust is not static. And male lust is different than female lust in this sense. Mm -hmm. As pornography is to men, and I'm, I'm thinking in terms of the original kind of pornography, you know, the centerfold kind of thing. But as lust is to men, visual lust, and hence pornography, erotica is to females. There's a basic difference, regardless of what the world's saying right now about there's no differences in gender. There is. Mm -hmm. For instance, you just look at the the magazine counter or I'm sorry, the section, let's go to Walmart, look at the book section. And you will have a very large section that probably you're only going to find women kind of browsing through. And it, they used to be called Harlequin romance. <laughs> well, look at the covers and they're almost semi pornographic these days. 
oh, well, yeah, you can look at behavioral, predatory behavioral patterns in men and women. Right, right. But you notice you don't have men hanging out at the Harlequin romance novel section. Yeah, no. For, for erotica, there's a storyline. So let's take Fifty Shades of Grey. Ugh, yeah. If a woman is foolish enough, to get into that stuff, <laughs> yeah. okay? And yeah. let's say they go to the movie theater and don't think the inmates weren't talking about that. That is the greatest <laughs> grooming tool. And now look what's happened. How many categories of stuff do we have? But Absolutely. the inmates were loving life when that came out on Valentine's Day. They yeah. were laughing. That became another topic of conversation. Women do not understand that the guy sitting next to them is not viewing Fifty Shades of Grey in the same way. She's into the storyline. He's not. Yeah. And that, that then adds that next level. So deviance, what happens with lust is if it continues and it is not checked, because it's already objectifying its object, now what starts to happen is there is a twisting effect that happens for the male in his heart of hearts, in his soul, in his mind, in his character, everything about him. And it moves then from lust into deviance. And my working definition of deviance is this. I no longer, I'm going to use a crass word, but I'm no longer getting off on physical, the physique. It's no longer even about the body anymore. So that's when you know it's shifted from lust, from lust into what kind of effect I can have on someone. That's the beginning of it. And it will go from me trying to get over on someone. So that used to be like the typical selfish high school. Okay, how far did you get? Or, you know, what base did you get to? Okay, or notches on one's belt. That's at the beginning of objectification and deviance. Moving to eventually a desire, not just power and control, but a desire to negatively impact and traumatize and defile. Defrauding comes even before that. Once that happens, and women need to understand this, there's a real process, and now modern technology has shown this to be the case, that a guy's brain not only is affected by porn, but he will become what Robert Hare calls a white-collar psychopath, but Robert Hare didn't focus on the porn aspect. I do. And you can, you can do an internet search, a Google search or whatnot, as far as images. Just type in um, brain Im images of the brain scans of psychopaths and watch what comes up. The brain of a psychopath is 100% different in terms of a couple of aspects than a normal person. But my contention is this, the more psychopathic someone becomes, and if they're sophisticated, they are not impulsive, and they actually look more normal, hence the guy in Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions for this regarding kind of sociopathy and considering how men seem to know that pornography is degrading and objectifying and um, humiliating and degrading. That's often why they do it and why they wouldn't, they claim to 
not want the women about whom they care in their lives to do it. And that's why they pass around, you know, revenge porn, like, oh, look at this dumb whore, basically. It's not to say, mm -hmm. oh, I just want to lift this woman and I hope that all area, like other areas of her life are, are well. But there's something, um, you know, in regardless of how women like Dworkin and McKinnon have been telling them for decades that it's sexual exploitation and women today, the National Center Against Sexual Exploitation, there is a movement against pornography, but will also will simultaneously be told by men like Joe Rogan, like, oh, that's why that's what happens when you turn 40. That's why no one wants to fuck you anymore. Um, excuse me. But um, okay. you'll get kind of back. So you'll what I'm getting at is um, despite the knowledge and being told that this is not good, um, they will do it anyway. And I think that mm -hmm. the, despite that analysis of it being sexualized violence, they'll continue to do it. And I mean, we can get into the discussion of quote unquote addiction later on, uh, but there is something, and from as well, uh, the time that women are young and uh, or girls are young in the schoolyard, we're told, oh, he's being mean to you because he likes you. There's just seems to be an overlap and, you know, getting into to snuff porn, which is way on the extreme end. But I mean, it's uh, if if a man is aroused by sexualized violence, I mean, there's no telling there's no that there is something considering right. how many men do consume, you know, 40 billion hits a year on Pornhub alone. Mm -hmm. um, it makes you question how many men are you know, sociopathic or no, psychopathic right. in this that's capacity, right. you know, right. whether or not it's just held in this realm of their sexual lives, because that obviously spills out all over, regardless of, you know, whether or not they've been convicted of a sexual assault, it, mm -hmm. you know, changes the way they view women. So, I mean, are you able to speak to what degree of men are potentially sociopathic or psychopathic, considering as well how many men tell me, you know, we're just hypersexual because of testosterone, basically. Yeah, they're, they're lying through their teeth. Okay. <laughs> they're lying through their, they're, they're just liars. Okay. What's, what's fun about, you know, he's turned fun. But, uh, you know, I, I've been doing this now for a while. And so sometimes it's almost like emergency room humor. You know, you kind of, mm -hmm. you got to do something with your trauma. So the vicarious mm -hmm. trauma, because I'm sitting with, I'm working with men that have harmed women. So you either want to rip their heads off and people are going to listen to this and think I'm, I'm empathic. Yeah, but the vast no, no, majority. Yeah, of, I right? like where you're going but, with that. <laughs> but the vast majority of sex offenders are unrepentant. Right. Okay. the The basic understanding, if someone's going to work with sex offenders, and what really concerns me, by the way, is in the field of sex offender uh, treatment, it's now falling as far as certification and training. It's now falling under the umbrella of trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a yeah. lie. Yeah. Okay? Which means this, that. The average sex offender treatment provider that is being trained and certified and now going out in the community and working with guys who are now on probation or parole. Why? Because they've offended. How have they offended? They've scarred someone for life. And now I, as a treatment provider, have been told that the reason the guy did it is because somehow in his life, he's working out his own trauma. Mm -hmm. And where did I get that from? Because they told me that. Oh, yeah. so I'm taking at face value the words of the greatest notorious liars in the world <laughs> and not knowing that they're playing me for an idiot and a fool. Mm -hmm. So when I say it's fun, you know, it's kind of vicarious drop, but. What's fun about, in a strange sort of way, what, 
what's beneficial for me about working with with predators with with sex offenders is this because i worked with them behind bars and any provider i i sort of have concerns about providers not a negative concern but you just don't know and i would not have believed it until working in prison so because i've worked in prison now i can do treatment on the street but if a guy's if somebody's doing treatment with sex offenders on the street so to speak but they've never worked extensively with these guys behind bars they're being they're being fooled because yeah. these guys are on their best behavior why because if they don't attend group they get kicked out of group if they're going back to prison and so we the safest group in the world to do if you're going to work with people that come out of prison physically safe is working with sex offenders because they're on their best behavior they're going to be really good mm -hmm. so what are they going to tell you they're going to tell you oh last night i i was on Pornhub. i was looking at looking at child pornography i don't think so because they're going back to prison <laughs> so the setup is you're dealing with a group in front of you of guys that are automatically they don't like you they don't want to be there they smile at your face they'll tell you anything you want to hear but they hate your guts because you're part of the system they're going to play you for a fool and unless mm -hmm. you're smarter than them so the the issue of uh, psychopathy and sociopathy and I'll, I'll describe the difference good people will try to make a difference but only those that really work behind bars with these guys have the opportunity to really get into the minutiae as far as how they think brain scans have shown there's a definite difference so most people say well it's either nature or nurture i'm here to tell you it's not now genetic components yeah but you would have identical twins being psychopaths or sociopaths if that's the case what it is is this and a psychopath is simply this it all comes down to conscience and my contention is this you violate your conscience long enough you'll become one and that freaks us out too much that's a little too close to home and so we say no 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 it couldn't be that so we uh, so it's interesting we don't really want to look at ourselves we have the ability how did germany become nazi germany within a few years mm -hmm. because there's something within the human heart it's called selfishness that if i unleash selfishness my ego will grow like a snowball and i will be able to ras rationalize and justify anything look at mommy dearest so this is not a male or female thing as far as selfishness so remove the fancy terms of sociopathy psychopathy narcissism remove that the easiest way to view it is scale of one to ten how far have i allowed my ego to grow there's a snowball like effect if i let it grow too much my entire character my entire inner world and my brain and my mind will be inverted to where what used to be good and bad right and wrong guess what they're forever inverted and i lose the desire to ever be any other way than more of what i'm becoming that's the key because there's a point of no return so the easiest way to view narcissism sociopathy and psychopathy is not separate and distinct it's on a progressive continuum because a sociopath already has a good self-esteem you have to feel pretty good about yourself to work another individual to your advantage so there ain't nothing wrong with your self-esteem now we would say well that's unhealthy different it doesn't matter but they have a really good self-esteem so a sociopath the best way to understand that is is this it sales so someone first starts to grow in their ego by definition they are a narcissist a simple narcissist has to have and they love mirrors 
<laughs> combing their hair, checking themselves out. That's simple because everybody figures it out. But a smart and sophisticated narcissist, you're not going to figure out. It has nothing to do with mirrors. It has to do with they're becoming the black hole and they're sucking the daylights out of everybody, making everybody kowtow to them, bow down to them, and walk on eggshells. That's a narcissist. Mm -hmm. But they do it in such a fashion that just shy of pointing a gun saying, you can't leave, they get the people to stay. That's an art form. That's a narcissist. You allow that to grow. And then the narcissist is now going to be all about self. And so everything they do, everything they say, every relationship they have is going to be for self-benefit. Now you have sociopathy. A, a sociopath has a great self-esteem because they believe they deserve, they have the right to you and your stuff and everything about you. They're on a mission. They're, they're target marketing. Hence, true marketing, actually. And so they will then start the process of working you. And they will base their effort and energy and how much they invest in doing that upon is it worth it? So cost-benefit analysis. When the cost begins to outweigh the benefit, they will stop because they're very pragmatic. And so it's like a, a car salesman. I'm not saying all car salesmen, <laughs> but think of it, right? And we'll find them everywhere. But the car salesman will spend a certain amount of time with the prospective um, purchaser, buyer. But if the person is being too, if the, if the prospect is taking too long, the salesperson will politely excuse themselves and they'll make up an excuse why they have to, you know, hey, you all think about it. I'm what they're doing. They're going to the other side of the car a lot. They're still selling. Right. So it's too much effort, too much energy. So they will move on. Guy meets girl in a bar. She thinks he's a wonderful guy. Why? Because she looks at him and there's chemistry. Mm -hmm. She has nothing. She knows nothing about him. She swipes left or swipes right, whatever. You know, so now they they meet. She knows nothing about this guy. He pours it on. And before you know it, she's in love. She knows nothing about this guy. She doesn't know if she's being worked. Yeah. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden one day, and how many times do I hear it in my counseling practice? John, I don't understand. Everything was going so well and he just left me. There you go. Yeah. Okay. And I have a podcast, Journey to Healing. I, I'm speaking of, to the issue of boundaries and we're dealing with this exact subject that he just, and the sociopath is an, uh, to be a good sociopath. You are a master of technique. It's an art where ultimately they have a hard time pinning it on you, right? Because they're, they're the smooth mover, but you keep ego going and they will morph into someone who it's not about, it's not about getting the stuff. Now it's about having an effect and it's even more than power and control, but that's where it moves into, but there's a realm beyond power and control. So the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath, view it on the slippery slope, scale of one to 10. When a, a guy, when a person can be a mother, think about mother Gothel in the movie tangled. Okay. She was a psychopath. What happened was gloves came off. Rapunzel comes out of that room. She's now seen the light, so to speak. She comes out and we see Mother Gothel 
who sings Mother Knows Best, been playing mind games with her daughter, trying to keep her in that tower. All of a sudden, Mother Gothel knows gigs up, and what happens? Chains and daggers. So this is not, you know, it's not gender specific, but when we talk about sex and sexuality, you layer that now with the male mind, there is a difference, the male brain. Then the guy not only is becoming a psychopath, but now he will use sex and sexuality to harm. And if a woman doesn't understand, and so what I plead to women is this, the bottom line, especially with what's out there, and I don't even know half the stuff that's out there. I don't want to know. I've seen enough. I read the criminal histories, trust me, and the victim statements. Mm -hmm. But what a woman needs to understand is this. In this day and age, if a guy is into pornography, get away from him. Amen. It's as simple as that. Because you don't know if you're dealing with a Ted Bundy. You don't know if you're dealing with it. I mean, honestly, this is now life threatening, but it's emotion threatening. You will never, I'm dealing with a woman right now. Uh, You know, uh, therapy is about being neutral, but I tell you what, I'm not neutral about this because I know what their brains are like. And, you know, this guy who she trusted, she found he's looking at porn and so they're working through their issues. Meanwhile, I'm essentially telling her, lady, you need your head examined. Yeah. And then she finds out he was calling up an escort when he's out on a business trip. Oh, but he does the song and dance routine and he's so sorry. No, he's not sorry. Because if he was sorry, he would have brought the information to her first. If a woman finds the, the stuff, if she has to find it, he's not sorry. Right, right. And I'll tell you how I really feel about all this. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) for sure. I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. And part of our differences is I believe that we are more nurturing. You know, love is blind as well. When you love somebody, you're like, oh, they're hurt. They just need, I can can love this out of them potentially. Oh, gosh, that's right. Yeah, and... um, Part of what you said prior about having this most mainstream society having this analysis of men just working out their problems because they were traumatized as if, you know, women are traumatized as well. There's still like a huge gap in behavioral patterns as you've been talking about. But, um, you know, I believe part of it is this mainstream analysis of quote unquote addiction and for me, um, I struggle with believing that, considering we know that pornography and prostitution are violence against women, that a man can be addicted to it. So right. um, what is your definition of addiction? Yeah, and let me speak to that. Excellent okay. question. Technically, it's not an addiction. Bottom okay. line. Okay, great. Okay. It's not. Now, I'm okay with using the term defin- uh, with using that definition simply as this, as a means of opening up people's eyes, opening up discussion. That's how I use it. Um, So I use it to my advantage because people conceptually understand addiction as there's something that's hooked a guy or hooked a person. So whether alcohol, drugs, whatever, um, and it's getting worse. That's kind of how I speak to that since the general public understands something about a detrimental activity, behavior, something that's getting worse. So that's how I use it. So I'm okay with actually saying a guy is addicted to porn, but then I leave that. Now I'm going to go to the real issue. Uh, So I, but in terms of actual definition, 
there has to be a change in the brain, brain chemistry, and usually through, and only through substance. So if somebody's talking about a behavior like gambling, uh, gambling addiction, you can't tell me gambling addiction isn't real. No, you I take wouldn't. a right. You meaning just for people to think through. What we're talking about is this, and this is where I bring in another topic, which is spirituality. Okay, I have worked with men in solitary confinement that are in for life. I tell people that in my former program would be the likes of were serial rapists and murderers. One guy that hacked up bodies. I had a cannibal in there. So Hannibal Lecter could have been the likes of my clientele. Ted Bundy could have been the likes of my clientele. I've worked with all types, really. Jodie Foster in the movie Silence of the Lambs got a taste of a, a day or two or a week of what I dealt with for six solid years. So I understand their minds. I have more clinical contact hours with more heinous individuals than any psychology staff in a prison setting in the U.S. or Canada. Wow. I just haven't published about it yet. So I'm him. Meaning, And that's why on social media, nobody's debated. So I can tell you definitively the mind of what happens to a man because I hear after the shift is over, I hear when the lights go off. I hear when there's nobody else on the unit and I approach their door. It takes months to hear what a detective, what an initial psych eval, what a psychiatrist is ever going to hear. And nobody has that time and, and few want to invest the time. It, it takes months of these guys watching you from their door in solitary or what's called the restricted housing unit or segregation unit. They watch. They only have time on their hands. They watch who comes onto the unit, who doesn't. They watch the grind up. You walk onto one of those units, you've never heard adjectives and expletives in your life. If you want a good example, watch the program, I think it's um, Dateline, called The Last Days of Solitary. If you want to watch what my former place of work was like, <laughs> that'll be that'll give you a sense of it and it's not always like that but i'm telling you so very few people i never would have guessed what it's like on that kind of unit mm -hmm. and it's only in the stillness that little by little going to the door having conversations through the little slit in the metal door where you have to put your ear to the door and he's on the other side and you're talking and you know, you finally hit pay dirt when he says this, Mr. Euler, this is, I'm going to tell you something I never told anybody before. What he's telling you is no one through the entire criminal justice system. And by that time he's been in for years, he's never told anybody what he's going to disclose. That's how you learn. So I can tell you, the, there are two common denominators among serial rapists and murderers. 100% of all sex offenders, let alone serial, serial rapists and murderers, 100% were heavily saturated in porn prior to their offense. 100%. Zero exceptions.
And 100% of all pedophiles progressed through adult porn all the way down to child porn. There's a pathway. And they were saturated in it prior to getting busted. This is the danger of porn. But 100% of the serial rapists and murderers that have a lot of victims that I worked with over time, they each, to a man, disclosed something coming over them prior to committing their offenses. Though they owned their behavior, and if we don't consider what those guys are saying, and it's like what Ted Bundy told James Dobson. Yeah. Okay, if I don't consider there really is a spiritual realm, I can be an atheist and I can ignore it. Well, okay, but I can tell you what these men have told me. It's porn, and you get into porn dark enough and far enough, something comes over you, though you're still responsible. But something comes over you, and it will leave after the offense. And, and it's interesting that the people will tell me there's nothing wrong with movies like Friday the 13th and all these. When you simply mention a, a very simple thing, which is, you know, maybe the guy invited something into his life. Oh, come on. Don't get weird and spiritual. Okay, so we can watch horror movies all we want. But suddenly when it comes to a sex offense, because it implicates porn in possibly opening the door to very dark spiritual things, we want to say, nope, nothing spiritual about that, really. So what, I'm, what I tell guys is this, and I have uh, two parts on SurvivorSupport.net under Insights tab one. You scroll down far enough and you'll see porn and dark deviance. And without exception, guys that have done really heinous offenses will tell you that something came over them, but they're not excusing their behavior. And what I tell guys is this, you dabble in porn long enough and you will go places you never anticipated. You will become somebody you don't even recognize and you will open the door. And then I tell them this, you, you doubt me, okay. But I'm telling you, I've heard it from professional grade offenders that something will come over you and will hook you and like the the kraken on the movie pirates of the caribbean you're on that ship you think everything's just fine you think you're captain of your ship you got it made you got everything under control and up will come these tentacles they'll grab hold of you they're invisible they will fling you they will beat you and you're a dead man and now you're an idiot you're a dead man walking and you will be a toy to be played with as you harm other people. And you'll awaken one day in solitary confinement because I never met one of those inmates that said this was their long-term plan to do significant time in prison. That's my message, especially to young boys now and young men that you fool around with this stuff and it will grab hold of you and it'll take you it'll take you where you never thought you'd go and now you will be looking into the family the eyes of family members of the victims who you changed their life forever and they'll spend the rest of their life getting over what you've done because you thought this was simply just a male thing 
and a private thing and, you know, freedom of expression. And it's mm -hmm. nothing to toy with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so grateful that you bring your faith into your analysis. Um, it seems like you do occasionally when you're able um, talk to your clientele about or you, um, yeah, you talk to them about how the sex industry is inherently harmful to women. Again, they might care. They might not. They might say, oh, I didn't know because they are manipulative on yeah, women. They don't, they don't care. They yeah, don't yeah, care. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, in the sect of Christianity, like at least which I subscribe, um, there's an analysis that it's not enough to lament. You have to repent. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Are there ever any circumstances, which is scary to me as a woman, to think that some men might have an analysis of being rehabilitated since there's all of this talk now about um, uh, justice that is just not rehabilitation. There's a different word for it. It's, um, it's, it's just basically not... It, it's retribution outside of the prison industrial complex. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know about that. But, um, um, would you, what do you, if there are circumstances where you feel that a man is rehabilitated, I mean, do you ever suggest repentance and suggest like, Hey, maybe read Dworkin pornography, men possessing women. Do you ever, what are the kind of steps after you've seen a man be rehabilitated? if there are any. Yeah, um, excellent question. And I'll answer it only very briefly, which is this. There is no rehabilitation without repentance. Now, mm. repentance has a religious connotation, but it's actually not. Mm -hmm. Though, of course, now it's become, right? It's used clearly in the Old and New Testament, but what does it mean? It's an archery term, actually. The term reprobate also is a metal urgy term, but it's found in Romans chapter one. So sometimes we think these words that we've heard are religious when they're actually not. Repentance is an archery term. Uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. Sin is an archery term, so my apologies. Repentance just means do a U-turn. So repentance presupposes there was sin. Sin is an archery term to miss the mark. So basically, I know what to do, and I'm choosing not to do that. Mm. So a guy has a conscience. And you have, no sex of, you have no sex offending without violation of conscience. So a guy is choosing to violate his conscience. He knows that he has done wrong. I have never once worked with a guy that didn't know the difference between right and wrong. That doesn't mean I, I haven't worked with guys. I was in charge of the mental health unit. Okay, But a criminally insane, a truly insane individual will not differentiate and will not pull the shades down. And they will be consistent both in season, out of season, in public and behind closed doors. They wear tin hats for a reason. OK, mm. but it's where a guy can differentiate. In public, he's one way behind closed doors. He's another. He's not insane. If you're not insane, then you know the difference between right and wrong. The very first place and the only place to start is honesty. If you ain't got honesty, you ain't got nothing. And so, so all these guys in their heart of hearts, they know. They're just hoping I don't know. So number one, I know that they know, and I want them to know that I know, which is this. They did what they did on purpose. Yeah. They liked doing what they did. They may not like the outcome. 
But if they truly hated what they were doing, they would kill themselves beforehand. Mm. Okay. So unless a guy, and here's the term I use, unless a guy is broken and contrite, just a broken heart, unless he comes to the end of himself, that's only possible by totally understanding, truly understanding, having an awakening. And that's why ultimately a human being, I don't believe, can do that. Because by the time someone's gotten to a point where they can use another person, let alone overtly harm them, and watch someone being harmed, you're callous and indifferent. The question is this. What's going to cause the person to come back? Nothing. They've gone too far. It has to be something on the outside of them or from the outside that starts to break through the concrete that's encased their heart. Out of the book of Jeremiah. It's interesting. God says, I'll take your stony heart. That's a sex offender. That's a guy that's into porn. You are callous and indifferent. You are getting off on seeing somebody harmed. You're a sick individual. Right. Well, he's never going to be able to come back from that. He's lost the want to. Yeah. It has to come from the outside, breaking through that concrete and helping him become human again. And so the best you'll have in my estimation, and I don't talk doctrine with anybody in my groups, but what I do say is this. And, and if, if your sex offender treatment doesn't start with this, it's, it's insufficient in my estimation. I always start with this. Gentlemen, someday you're going to die. I draw a tombstone with a birth and a death date. Put a little question mark where the death date. I said, that's going to be you someday. I said, we have two things to discuss. What do you want people to say about you in the eulogy, if anybody even shows up? And what's going to happen to you a split second and a half after you step out of your carcass? And I said, that's where you have to begin because that's where it all begins. I said, in order to offend, what you did is you told yourself there's no payday someday. There's no accountability. And so you became the arbiter of what was right and wrong. Yeah. And until I as a person get to a point, especially a male, where I realize I may have a really rough discussion with somebody at a very high level, much higher than me, then I'm not going to have any fear. And then if I find out that the real fear comes from, I need to have the same estimation about another person as he does. And if I didn't, then that conversation ain't going to go very well. If that is missing from your treatment, it's foolish because now all you're dealing with is cognitive behavioral stuff. Nobody offends because of cognitive behavioral deficiencies. Mm -hmm. They offend because of a lack of conscience and they don't care about right and wrong. It's a moral issue. Yeah. And that's a spiritual issue. And so, unfortunately, modern-day therapy comes along and says, well, we won't talk about spiritual, okay? Mm -hmm. So you're going to intellectualize your way into discussing with these guys why they shouldn't harm another person. Really? <laughs> why they should feel bad? If a, guy, if a guy isn't broken and contrite, he's going to do it again. He's not sorry. Right. And not just intellectual sorry that he got busted he has to be undone within himself and that in my estimation is a spiritual work
and unapologetically. That's what I start with the guys. Then I tell them this. I said, guys, I'm not Jewish, but if you want to find out where you're at and what kind of conversation and how that's going to go and whether or not after the sound of my words, you walk out of this group, ignoring what I say, then it's between you and him. You can, you can ignore it all you want, but I say this. Go read Psalm 25, verse 1. I said, you actually need Psalm 25, written 3,000 years ago, and I'm not Jewish. But if a guy doesn't, if that's not his starting point, then sex offender treatment is a waste of time. But I'll still work with any guy. (laughs) But I'm telling you, because he'll nod, he'll tell you what you want to hear, and if he's a pedophile, he's going to go home and watch Toddlers and Tiaras. Yeah. And what do you think he's doing as he's watching that? Oh, yeah. Well, I think we know. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Okay. One last question. Um, Thankfully, most of what you share is public. What advice do you have for people who fear retribution? Well, who fear backlash, I should say, for, um, you know, speaking out against gender identity ideology in the sex industry? Oh, yeah. Now you've brought up, uh, and I'm happy to do it. Can you clarify that? Because you just met, sure. you just said gender ideology. Well, yeah. Um, uh, well, maybe not pertaining to gender identity ideology. But I mean, in your case, I mean, I would encourage people to speak out against it. But just at least regarding the sex industry, what, like, how do you reconcile any fear of backlash that you might have have you ever feared backlash about your career because of what you've shared politically and being politically outspoken well i try to stay away from politics (laughs) but i know what you're talking about right people (laughs) would equate well right you've got these but actually very rarely will anybody ever find anything i talk about politics because i have very i have my own political views don't don't get me wrong i'm happy to talk politics with anybody but well, controversial my, issues, I should say. Pardon yeah, me. Yeah, but okay. a controversial issue simply has to do with moral issues, okay. issues of right and wrong, if you really boil it all down to. Um, and, and so somebody doesn't like boundaries. So if you watch those that really uh, get all up in arms about things, it's really against the suggestion that there is right and wrong, and there's uh, not just right and wrong, but good, better, and best, and that we should treat each other properly and we are our brother's keeper. And what's interesting in the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections in their TC unit, they use that phrase all the time. I am my brother's keeper. Do you know where that came from? I, I actually don't. That, come, that, that was the discussion. <laughs> that, was the, that was the response that Cain had with God after right, God said, where's your brother? Because he had killed his brother. Right. So talk okay, about yeah. a spiritual phrase. So here's, here's Cain talking to God, saying, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, we are. We are responsible for one another, but ultimately we are responsible for our own behavior. But I need to be mindful of the ripple effect. And so my freedom stops where you get impacted. And so with that, as a, that makes me fully, that makes me human. What makes me fully human is going a step beyond that and working towards the ultimate good on behalf of someone, helping them become fully human. Um, As far as in the sex industry, and I'll speak to the gender identity because a lot of people 
do I fear uh, retaliation? Oh, it's happened all the time. I'm no longer on Twitter. I was frozen out of my account. Wow. I had the hordes of the transgender folks and those that were into kink and those that were into furries lodged a, an online campaign which resulted in an official investigation against my professional license. We also went after my, uh, my place of employment part-time. Guess what I was doing? Sex offender treatment. And they got me fired because the director, oh, yeah. So I've lived everything you can do to someone. Okay. So you speak to this issue. You speak to what? Here's the ultimate issue that everybody will go nuclear. And it's now about the trans stuff. And in a nutshell, here's my concern about trans. And I have a number of videos, by the way, on YouTube. Or you can go on SurvivorSupport.net. Um, under podcast, there's one on there, but you know, on my YouTube channel. And the trans deception is simply this. It didn't exist prior to the year 2005. Just didn't. How do I know that? Because I've worked with the hardest of cases for years of adolescents out in Southern California and in Pennsylvania in residential treatment. Um, there's not a kind of case of a kid that's taken out of the home that I haven't dealt with. And if you want to find out what's true, you listen, you talk to kids in the system and they don't have much of a filter on their mouth. They will tell you exactly what's true. What's happened is this. There were some very dark but brilliant individuals that decided to have a marketing scheme toward as a means to an end to get their hands on the bodies and body parts of young people. Why? You have financial predators and sexual predators. And because of my understanding of sexual predators, I see, I'm not looking, I wasn't looking for it, but I see what the trans deception is all about. And so do other people. But the one thing that I see, because my background is this, hiding within the trans movement, which is filled with about 80% of legitimate kids. And here's the profile of the kids that are being sucked into the trans movement. You have sexual abuse victims. You have kids that are on the autism spectrum. You have kids that were in the system, the foster care system, and those that have been groomed since very young. And the one thing you have with all of those kids is they have mental health diagnosis that aren't being adequately treated, and their, their intuition has been dumbed down to where predators now, financial or sexual, can easily manipulate them toward a desired end. They are sitting ducks. You cannot tell me that where psychology used to be all about enhancing self-esteem and helping someone accept themselves, now suddenly, since 2010, the only way to a kid, a troubled kid, is we're going to help a troubled kid by not accept themselves, by, but by change and amputate themselves? Yeah. I don't think so. And so the trans movement is the greatest predatory movement that's using kids as fodder for their own design. And the way you tackle with gender dysphoria and without the DSM-5, you would never have this. And so 12 individuals plus one made this possible. Yeah. Because now you can bill for this. And it's diabolical. The way you help a kid through any kind of confusion is you let them talk, you let it get them, you help them get it out and you help them find what they're good at. That's how you build self-esteem. But all these kids 
have been sexualized. A child will not have an independent sexual thought prior to puberty until uh, hormones kick in. All these kids are being groomed. And you have, and in my video, my documentary, Understanding the Trans Movement, I, I, I lay out how many different hyenas are trying to feed off the carcass of these vulnerable kids. And so I get, the other half of my life, I get equally exercised about that because I'm all about protecting women and children. And if you, if you are telling someone that they're finding their true self, but they'll just have to um, bolster that by artificial means for the rest of their lives, you have, you have done what a cult does to someone and you are not helping them, you are using them. And so in the sex industry, now you have a bunch of guys that are, uh, the majority of the men, they're going into the sex industry, the vast majority, because I had them in prison, have been sexually abused, now they cross-dress. So male prostitutes, almost to a guy, prostitutes have been sexually abused, uh, both male and female. Okay, but within the transgender movement, you have the activists, which are some that there's a layer that are useful idiots and they're just reactive. They march down the street, burn buildings. But you then have very sophisticated individuals and they're using these kids and they're using the trans movement to recruit into prostitution. And then through that, you have the problems that are going on in the prison where the sex offenders that are the most dangerous for women will easily say, I'm a woman, so they can get into a female prison and rape the women. Mm -hmm. And so the trans movement is nothing but bad news. It's using kids that are very troubled. Look at Jazz Jennings. Yeah. I'll tell you what's going to happen. My greatest fear is Jazz is going to kill himself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do I want that? Of course not. The kid's melting down. The young adult is melting down. I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen if that young person who's not getting any help kills himself, headlines will be, because of homophobia and transphobia, jazz couldn't take it anymore. Really? So the number one poster child that has the number one support has millions in the bank, free ride to Harvard. If ever there's an insulated individual who has been the poster child for trans, it's been Jazz Jennings, who was used by a narcissistic personality disorder driven mother and the father. And I have serious concerns about what's happened in that family. But what will happen is this. They'll say through persecution, jazz ended it. No, it fine. The truth was finally surfacing that this young boy was manipulated. And now he's, he's coming of age and he's just, they've messed this young man up. It's horrible. If all that kid needed is to be let alone and just be a normal kid. Yeah. Kids will be fine if you get the adult grooming out of the way and social media grooming out of the way. Kids won't have an issue. It doesn't matter if for girls, we call them tomboys. It doesn't matter. You don't confuse these kids and they'll be fine. Help them know where their strengths are. Help them know they are unique and they're special and they can do whatever they want to do. And I'll tell you what, the issue of sex and sexuality will fall to the wayside. People are using these kids. So within the issue of the sex industry, which is prostitution, which is the age old form of enslavement, just using women, yeah. you, you have young kids, especially out of the foster care system. So perps now 
work in foster care, work in children and youth or family and department of children and family services. You have sex trafficking going on. And they are recruiting these kids into the trans movement so that they can recruit them into the, so pimps, pimps are destroying these kids. And so I'm passionate whenever kids or whenever women are placed in harm's way, then I will get agitated. (laughs) Fair enough. Wow. Incredible and fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. I've had you for well over an hour. So um, I'm going to let you go. But uh, yeah, thank God we have you. Appreciate you, uh, John Mueller. Thank you so much for your time today. Cheryl, it's been a pleasure. All right. All right. Until next time. Take care. There you go. Thanks, John. You've just heard an interview with John Euler. You can find his work at survivorsupport.net and churchproject.org. You can also watch his documentary series and his own podcast interviews on his YouTube channel. I'm Cheryl. This has been the podcast. <laughs>